Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan. As always, good to see you. Uh, Thank you for watching. Please hit like and subscribe if you haven't already. So on today's show, I'm very excited to be talking to our friend Matt Huber. Uh, He's been on the Jacobin channel before. You probably know him as a uh, contributor to Jacobin and Catalyst. He writes about the climate left, the climate movement, uh, and his latest book out from Verso is Climate Change as Class War. So I'll be talking to him in a little bit about um, not just the class composition of the climate movement as it is now, uh, but why exactly we should think of the climate struggle as class struggle and um, what it would actually take to build a working class coalition that is capable of fighting for large public works programs like the, the Green New Deal. Uh, also on today's show, we have two segments actually about the recent news um, about the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade that's likely coming. Uh, I'll be taking a look at all of the corporations that have recently come out in support of abortion rights. I think that there has been a lot of cheering from the um liberal side of the Democratic Party about corporations taking a stand on reproductive freedom. I, of course, will have some comments about why I don't think this is a productive development. Uh, I will also be talking to the writer Natalie Schur, who, of course, has been a guest on the show in the past. Uh, She has a great new article out in The New Republic about why the Supreme Court's decision concerning Roe v. Wade might not actually motivate voters to turn out for Democrats in this year's midterm elections, despite what Democrats are obviously, you know, hoping will happen. Uh, So I will be sitting down with her um, and talking about that right now, I guess. (laughs) All right. So we are now joined by Natalie Shore. She is a columnist at The New Republic, also a frequent contributor to Jacobin. And her latest article for TNR, which we'll be talking to her about today, is The End of Roe v. Wade Won't Motivate Democrats. Natalie, good to see you again. Good to be on. Thank you so much. So I want to dive straight into your TNR article. Um, Obviously, you know, following the news that the Supreme Court will likely overturn Roe v. Wade, I think that there's been a lot of um, fear, uh, energy, apprehension, and specifically, I think the Democratic Party is sort of hoping that this shocking news will help turn out voters in what was previously looking like a doomed midterm election for them. So your article um, examines some of the reasons why this might not necessarily be the case. And so I thought maybe we could start by talking a little bit about um, who exactly are the people today who say that they're most concerned about reproductive rights? And why do you feel like voters who are um, sort of outside of this core demographic might not turn out this fall? Yeah, so there's an interesting paradox uh, when it comes to abortion. First of all, I think it's important to note that the majority of people in the country do support safe legal and abortion in many cases, not necessarily all cases, but many cases. Uh, and the number of people who wanted Roe to be overturned outright is very small, only around 20% of people. Uh, so we're talking about a large group of people that do support abortion rights. Uh, when we talk about people who get abortions most often, we're talking about people who are poor, people who generally already have children, uh, and people who are very low income. I'm, I already used <laughs> poor, low income, uh, generally women of color. Um, But the people who are uh, most passionate about uh, abortion rights, that is not only the most likely to say that they are ardently supportive of abortion rights, uh, but also people who say that it's one of their top issues, someone, you know, that, that claims that it's one of the most important things that gets them out to vote. That's a very particular group that tends to be uh, wealthier women, um, highly educated women. Um, often, you know, concentrated around cities. So we're talking professional class people uh, that won't necessarily be as directly affected by this ruling uh, as other people will. 
Um, so ultimately, I think the reason that I'm skeptical that this will uh, amount to a sea change for Democrats, that this can be the issue that basically drags us left politically, is because the people who are most likely to be uh, really really stirred by this issue are people who are really solidly already in the dem- uh, the Democratic's uh, the Democratic Party's base. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the idea that this will either flip people from the right to the left or will mobilize um, a type of voter that that already doesn't often vote, um, mm-hmm. people who are, you know, poorer, who, who come to the polls less often. Uh, I just don't know if it has the power to, you know, be transformative in that way. Um, I think that people who follow Supreme Court rulings the most are are already in the contingent likely to vote for Democrats. And, you know, for for other people, um, this this will affect them very seriously in some cases. But it's also important to realize that a lot of people have been living in a post row universe already or something very close to it. Uh, abortion access has really been lacking in many places for a long time. It can be extraordinarily expensive for certain people. And I think that that has to be part of our analysis. I want to now ask you about um, the role that abortion plays in politics more broadly today, because something interesting you point out in your article is that, um, you know, it's really important to look at how exactly abortion kind of became a central concern of the Republican Party and in many ways helped reshape the Republican coalition. So uh, when and how did this happen? Yeah, so I think that this was a very, you know, multi-pronged process, but I think the very, very basic contours of what happened is basically the fact that in the 1970s, you have the rise of the women's movement, and for them, you know, abortion is a centrally important issue. Um, but abortion isn't necessarily strictly partisan before that. Uh, you know, you have liberal Republicans, you have some, you know, less, you have some uh, people who are less supportive of abortion in the Democratic coalition. It's not necessarily something that splits along partisan lines. Uh, I think at the same time, you have the women's movement, they are really grasping for this issue um, and like centering it in their understanding of politics. Uh, and then you also have have um, a lot of, you know, desegregation efforts that are causing a lot of backlash uh, among white voters. Um, and then I think you have the rise of the rise of neoliberalism, which comes alongside the decline of labor in general, and certainly the decline of organized labor as uh, a part of the base of the Democratic Party. Uh, and I think that with Ronald Reagan, you basically see a few of these things get consolidated. I think that at that point, uh, the Republican Party becomes um, really solidly the party that exists for a few other reasons than to serve capital. And that's obviously very, very unpopular. And so I think that that is why you see, um, you know, the ultra libertarian right kind of wedded with what becomes the religious right, uh, that they start, you know, getting people inflamed about cultural issues. Um, and a lot of these people were people who were already primed to be politicized by desegregation. Um, and that they kind of forward that, uh, in order to drum up votes for capital. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, abortion has been, uh, very central in the political sphere since that happened, that it's mm-hmm. basically, uh, used as a way to fight class war from, yeah. from top down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to stay on that point um, because that's a great line from your article. You write, the anti-abortion movement is class war disguised as culture war. Um, so maybe explain a little more what you mean by this. And um, I guess as a follow up, like, why do you think it's so important to conceive of the fight for reproductive rights in this way if we if we truly want to defend and expand abortion access in this country? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that I, I think that it is important to understand that, uh, you know, in the days before Roe and in the days after Roe, uh, the people who will be most affected uh, overwhelmingly are, you know, people, people who are poor, people of color. Uh, mm-hmm. And that isn't to say that it's not important or that other people shouldn't fight for it. Uh, but I do think that that is, uh, you know, why, why it has so much purchase. 
on the right to begin with, why it has so much purchase uh, within the American public and, you know, why it does fit so seamlessly into the rest of a right wing agenda and the rest of an agenda that serves capital. Um, I also think that, you know, that that is what makes uh, makes it so clear what the response has to be. Uh, if, you know, uh, insofar as, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the people who the right wing agenda is very much to serve capital uh, at all costs. Um, I think that, you know, there will never be a point at which, you know, a, a wealthy CEO or a wealthy CEO's wife or mistress will not be able to get an abortion if she so chooses. Um, I, I don't think that that is what they're going for. They will, you know, do all they can to kick women at the very bottom, the way all of their other policies do. I think they're very happy to do that. Uh, and, you know, the response to that is roughly similar to the response to, you know, a lot of the rest of the political problems in this country, which is that we need class struggle from below. This mm -hmm. is fundamentally a class issue. That means that we need, you know, a reconstitution of class politics, uh, you know, to turn the Democratic Party, if that's possible, into a vehicle for aiding that. Uh, you know, we need a resurgent labor movement, all of those other things. Uh, I think that that is ultimately the answer to the threat uh, on reproductive rights, as opposed to, you know, talking about abortion again, as Democrats have been for so long. And, and that's been, or, you know, I mean, as, as a certain contingent of Democratic voters, I don't think that Democrats have necessarily been extremely protective of reproductive rights uh, for reasons that are obvious. But you know, I, I think that the, the response to this, the way to protect reproductive rights is see it in concert with, uh, you know, reproductive justice more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, the right to bodily autonomy, the right to not parent must be hand in hand with the right to parent, if that's what someone wants, um, and, and fight, fight along class lines accordingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm, in your piece, you know, you also make the great point that uh, the mainstream pro-choice movement and sort of most visibly, you know, the people who are at the demonstrations kind of in their Handmaid's Tale costumes, um, it, it seems like they sort of conceive of the rollback of abortion rights in the U.S. as like the sign, a sign of like an impending theocracy. And, you know, I, I think uh, you have a great line in your piece where you say, well, it's not really theocracy that's on the horizon. It's, it's oligarchy. Uh, so I guess maybe like... Like a final question for you is what would it look like in practice to fight for reproductive freedom, not just as a tenet of gender equality, which obviously it is, but also, as you've been talking about, as a class politics? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that has to do with the fact that, you know, the, the culture wars and it's completely dismaying how powerful these issues are, right? Like, I am ardently passionate about abortion. I am a secular person. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about uh, rights for queer people, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You know, like all of these, all of these lines on which Republicans are fighting. But part of why those those issues are so powerful and resonant for people is because there is not a meaningful class war going on. There's nothing happening along class lines uh, in the political sphere. Uh, insofar as there is, maybe there are overtures toward it, uh, but there there is not, um, you know, a, a powerful class-based movement uh, in which people are fighting over you know, material, material interests in, in any grand way. Um, and I think that, you know, we, we need to bring back class politics in this country. So, you know, I think that getting to a point where politics are less about cultural issues, where cultural issues uh, are, are less able to, you know, be the thing on which everything else hinges, uh, that has to do with, you know, reviving class politics. That's going to be what makes that possible. Um, you know, deep organizing, uh, resurgent labor movement, those things basically uh, create new institutions, new social worlds. Um, so that, you know, at the end of the day in this country, people vote how other people in their lives vote. Uh, you know, I, not everyone pays super close attention. You know, people tend to 
take cues from their neighbors. That's what people are talking about. Uh, and so changing those social realities, those cultural realities, I think is a very, you know, deep class-based project. Um, but, you know, the idea that abortion, I think, is unlikely to be the mobilizing tenant for d Democrats. And I think it will cease to be for the right as well. You know, it didn't make it into the piece because it has a had a super tight word count. But one thing I found very telling while I was researching this, I did mention that, you know, I think if anything, abortion's ability to get right-wing voters into a tizzy has actually passed its apex. Hmm. Uh, and that subbing in things like, you know, demonizing trans people and trans kids uh, has, I think, mostly done the same work. Mm -hmm. uh, and one thing that came up while I was researching this was uh, Life News, which is this news outlet specifically focused on abortion. They've been tweeting a lot about trans kids lately. Hmm. Uh, and I think that that just goes to show that, um, you know, they are they are tapping into a lot of the same social realities. And, you know, the, the answer to this has to be a lot deeper than, um, you know, figuring out how to talk about abortion a little more. Mm -hmm. uh, if that if that does help, we should do it in certain margins, but we need something more fundamental. We need a way to get voters who are outside of the professional classes, who are outside of major cities. So do you think that there is anything Democrats can do at this point to salvage midterms in any way? Because it does seem like Obviously, if the Republicans, you know, manage to sweep the Senate or manage to gain a few more governor's seats, that could have even more dire implications in a sort of post-Roe world for abortion rights. Um, what can Democrats do, if anything, at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think that talking about uh, Roe and reproductive rights is, is probably a good idea insofar mm -hmm. as it is important to remember that that these are popular things and that, you know, insofar as there are some people on the fence, uh, maybe, maybe that could help in certain cases. But I think, you know, beyond just the midterms, uh, we need to figure out how to build class politics in this country. And I think that's pretty much what, what Bernie tried to do, you know, <laughs> tried to, uh, basically turn the Democratic Party into a vehicle for class politics. And, you know, as much as it sounds like it's not related, I don't know, championing the PRO Act, Mm -hmm. I can't I can't imagine anything in terms of like electoral politics on on a short medium term level that could be more useful. Uh, I would I would love to, you know, if not talking literally about the protest pro act, because a lot of people probably don't know what it is, um, you know, talking, talking about work, talking about labor, talking about class, uh, I think, is something that we have to have more of in this country. All right. Again, Natalie's latest article for TNR is The End of Roe v. Wade Won't Motivate Democrats. Natalie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So in a minute, I will be back with my own segment on uh, corporations signaling their support for abortion rights. But first, a quick message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Versa Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months, and if you join in May, you'll get these books. Abolition Geography, Essays Toward Liberation by Ruth Wilson Gilmore, a collection of essays from over three decades of Gilmore's work on prison abolition and racial justice. Winston Churchill, His Times, His Crimes by Tariq Ali, a critical portrait of Britain's greatest imperialist. Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet by Matthew T. Huber, a bold argument that the carbon-intensive capitalist class must be confronted for producing climate change. And the paperback edition of Taking a Long Look, Essays on Culture, Literature, and Feminism in Our Time by Vivian Gornick. Become a member today at versobooks.com. There's a powerful new champion of reproductive freedom in America, corporations. That's right. In the wake of last week's leaked Supreme Court draft decision indicating that Roe v. Wade will be overturned, a number of corporations have generously announced that they'll cover expenses for employees who might need to travel for an abortion if and when it becomes illegal in their state. These companies include Amazon, Citigroup, Uber, Lyft, Levi Strauss, Tesla, Salesforce, and Yelp, among others. Banking giants Goldman Sachs and JPMorgan Chase are reportedly also considering following suit. 
and an increasing number of businesses are now signaling support for abortion rights in other ways. For instance, OkCupid recently tweeted, Roe v. Wade being overturned is unacceptable. OkCupid has proudly supported reproductive rights for years and we're not stopping now. Gender equality is at stake and more brands need to step up. Tag a brand you want to see take action. They then shared a list of signatories to a pro-choice campaign called Don't Ban Equality that includes Ben & Jerry's, Goop, Everlane, Patagonia, and Grindr, among other companies. In an article praising businesses stepping up to defend abortion rights, a columnist for the Seattle Times recently wrote, I hate to close with this because it goes against what we're supposed to believe about our allegedly people-powered democracy, but maybe only corporations can save us now. I disagree. No matter how thrilled liberals may be by this recent corporate enthusiasm for women's rights, leaving even a small part of abortion access to the discretion of the business sector is not any kind of solution to the rights attacks on reproductive freedom. It's just another sign of our democracy in decay. Now, to be clear, the overturning of Roe will have grave consequences for women in the U.S., particularly for those who lack the financial resources or the job security necessary to travel out of state to obtain an abortion. The end of the ruling means that abortion could become illegal in half of all states in the country. It would also put the right in a position to advance even more draconian legislation, such as a federal abortion ban or bills that classify abortion as homicide. What's more is that the systematic undermining of abortion rights in the U.S. over the past few decades is the product of both the Republicans' ruthless commitment to minoritarian rule and the Democrats' complete fecklessness. Keep in mind that most Americans support upholding Roe and agree that abortion should be legal in some or most cases. Yet, five unelected Supreme Court justices, four of whom were appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote, are now on the verge of overturning the ruling. And Democrats, for their part, declined to do anything at all to enshrine the right to abortion on a federal level, even when they controlled the presidency and both houses of Congress under Obama. And aside from staging a symbolic Senate floor vote that they knew in advance would fail earlier this week, it's still not entirely clear what they're going to do now to defend abortion rights, though they're clearly hoping the issue will turn out voters for them during midterm elections and fuel the endless cycle of fundraising. As journalists for The Lever have pointed out, there are plenty of ways that Democrats can take action to expand abortion access. For instance, blue states with budget surpluses could theoretically open new public abortion clinics run by unionized healthcare workers to accommodate a potential rise in demand. These same legislatures could also help provide funds for people traveling to the state for an abortion. But will any of that actually happen? The Lever noted, we reached out to top Democrats in California, Maryland, and Illinois to ask what steps they are willing to take to ensure access to abortion care. None returned a request for comment. It's precisely this political vacuum that has handed the private sector and corporations a PR opportunity to now signal how progressive they are by promising to help their employees access abortion. As we all know, the business sector has been big on so-called corporate social responsibility over the last few years. They've come out in support of and even donated billions of dollars to causes like racial justice, voting rights, and LGBTQ rights. But fundamentally, corporate social responsibility is the end result of decades of free market policies in which the government has declined to intervene on issues like healthcare, climate change, poverty, and economic inequality, and instead left such problems to be, quote, solved by the market or by so-called public-private partnerships that usually end up enriching the private sector at the expense of the public. And no matter how enlightened corporations may seem these days, their bottom lines are ultimately where the rubber beats the road, which means that for all of their recent progressive signaling, you'd still be hard-pressed to find a corporation advocating for, say, the PRO Act, a federal minimum wage increase, or higher taxes. Corporations' recent championing of abortion rights and other progressive causes is also concerning because it suggests that while big business has traditionally enjoyed a cozy relationship with the Republican Party, they're now willing to risk angering the GOP because they also have plenty of friends in the Democratic Party. To look at just one recent example of this friendliness, here's Virginia Senator and former vice presidential candidate Tim Kaine at last week's Senate hearing on Amazon. I don't challenge some of the facts that my... uh my chairman laid out or, or that you've laid out. And I think some compelling stories, but I don't think Amazon is an organized criminal syndicate. It definitely um, is the way they treat their workers, sir, with all yeah, due respect. Yeah, so I mean, I know that that's your opinion and you are as sincere in stating that as I am in saying that I think that's a, a vast overstatement. Um, 
Amazon employs a million Americans. Not everybody hates their jobs at Amazon. Tens of thousands, thousands of them work in Virginia. Not everybody hates their job at Amazon. Amazon's going to open a huge headquarters in Northern Virginia that was going to have 25,000 employees, but after New York said, we don't want you, it's going to be 35,000 employees in Northern Virginia, and Virginians are very excited about it. It's in probably the, the bluest part of Virginia, and the County Board of Supervisors, they're thrilled to have Amazon. Amazon, if you recall, is one of the companies that has bravely offered to pay for abortion-related expenses for its employees. And on this issue, Amazon's behavior is pretty instructive of the limits of corporate social responsibility because, after all, in addition to their recent ruthless union busting, they're the very same company that has consistently paid little to no federal income taxes. Likewise, plenty of other big companies that recently announced their support for abortion rights, including Salesforce and Levi Strauss, have also dodged paying their fair share of taxes and or engaged in relentless political lobbying to roll back labor protections and other laws that threaten to interfere with their profit. In other words, corporations consistently use their power, money, and political influence to undermine the public good and then turn around and offer crumbs to citizens under the PR-friendly guise of social responsibility. Defending and expanding reproductive rights in the U.S. after Roe is overturned will of course require quick action, plenty of creative maneuvering, and possibly even some new political coalitions. But make no mistake, corporations will never be the ones to save us. All right, so we are now joined by Matt Huber. He is an associate professor of geography at Syracuse University. He's also author of the book Lifeblood, Oil, Freedom, and the Forces of Capital. And of course, his new book is Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. We'll be talking to him about that today. Matt, it's good to see you. Great to be here. Great to see you, Jim. So uh, let's just dive in. You argue in your book that climate struggle is in many ways uh, a class struggle. And um, I think what's interesting is you point out that it's not just because, you know, capitalists are overwhelmingly causing climate change and workers are overwhelmingly bearing the brunt, although, of course, that is one major component. Um, but I think what's really interesting about your book is you you talk about how the fight over climate is ultimately a fight over ownership and production. And that's a another significant way in which it is a class struggle. Um, so, so start there. Uh, explain what that means. Yeah, you know, part of this analysis came out of a bit of frustration with seeing a lot of people on the left sort of claiming climate is a class struggle, but then using data that just shows that rich people consume more than, than working class people and they consume right. they consume yachts or they consume steak or and it was completely like a, a to be frank not a marxist analysis of class it's based on people's income and their consumption and their lifestyle and it actually struck me like if you honestly look at the climate crisis and what we need to do it's it's like a world historical uh, struggle over how we produce the 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 world you know our food our energy our housing so the people that actually own and control the means of production but like you take this kind of classic marxist definition of classes who owns and controls the means of production to me that just seemed like that was a much more accurate way to analyze what what the climate crisis is about you know it's about um uh really wrestling control over production from a class that's really just seeking profit as long as possible, particularly the fossil fuel industry, who's, you know, counting on profiting off this uh, energy source well into this century. And they want to they want to do so um, against all opposition. So that sort of class analysis, a, a very kind of standard uh, socialist vision of class analysis would just seem sort of absent in the analysis. So um I tried to, to to really ground the book in that framework. So why do you think it's been so hard to kind of emphasize the role of capitalist production in this larger problem of climate change? Um, why do you think it's been the case that climate politics has been um, not exclusively, but sort of largely, at least until pretty recently, focused on things like, you know, consumerism, as you were saying, and individual lifestyle choices? Yeah, it's a... Uh... In many ways, I think um, we live particularly in a country like the United States that's gone through, you know, a massive hollowing out of industrial production itself, has gone through widespread deindustrialization where the industrial working class has been, you know, uh, uh, 
shrunk <laughs> to a large degree. And, you know, people you often hear like in the United States, like 70 percent of GDP is consumption. So I, I feel like people, um, you know, only see in their lives their consumption patterns. They see consumption on the surface of their everyday lives. It's what they do. And so when people are telling them, like, all these acts of consumption are linked to emissions, you know, when you trace the connections, people sort of start to say, well, well, all this consumption that I see is is causing climate change. And um, what really helped me, actually, is when you go uh, to um, volume one of, of Capital, Marx is like, we actually have to look at what he calls the hidden abode of production to un- understand where exploitation happens, understand where workers are struggling against capitalists in the factory, in the, in the, in the, at the point of production. And actually what he points out is that we see the market exchange and consumption on the surface of, of life, but we don't understand the real roots of capitalism or in production. And so that analysis, uh, <laughs> I, I didn't try to reinvent the wheel, wheel just said we, you know, we have to look at the hidden abode of, of what's causing the climate crisis. And even if, you know, we might be driving a car um, that's emitting carbon out of our tailpipe, why aren't we paying attention to the owner of the car company that sold us the car or not to mention the owner of the oil that sold us uh, the gasoline that we put into the car? So every act of consumption can be traced back to these people that are profiteering off those acts of consumption who, to be honest, are, you know, they're making the money on these mm-hmm. exchanges. And so that, in my view, they're the ones truly benefiting from those kind of relationships. And so, um, yes, but you really have to start, you know, doing kind of political economic analysis to even really understand those relationships to production. Because, again, people, when all they see is consumption in, in everyday life, they, they often um, it doesn't make sense to kind of think through these deeper connections to that hidden, hidden abode of production. So maybe talk a little bit more about what it would mean for the climate movement to sort of shift focus to production um, or to these relations of production. Because I think, you know, it's clear at this point that um, or I I think, you know, for a lot of us on the left, uh, the kind of limitations of focusing on consumerism or, you know, the caricature being like, just turn off the lights. um, I think (laughs) lots of people who, you know, identify as part of the climate left kind of understand that that's not going to cut it anymore or that's, if anything, just a drop in the bucket. So what does it mean to actually um, shift a political strategy to focusing on production? Yeah. So I think in in one sense, like um, there's just still so much of this moral politics of lifestyle. And right. so even when people say, yeah, we don't want to focus on individual consumption, they'll still kind of moralize about rich people and their consumption, right? Right. <laughs> um, which ignores how these rich people make all the money that affords their consumption, right? And and that activity of, of the money making, who knows what they do in their work life to make all that money that allows them to consume a private jet or whatever it is. Um, so to me, like, um, it makes it politically more clear what we need to do. Instead of morally persuading millions of dispersed consumers to kind of change their lifestyle, mm-hmm. we actually have to sort of confront the power of, you know, a small minority of people who control production. Now, that's simpler, I think, from a political point of view. It's like very clear. It's the capitalist class. We need to confront them. It's possibly not easier. (laughs) Uh, It's not, it's not easy at all. But um, I think, I think it really just allows us to possibly to start to build a broader base for this kind of politics, because I think the moralistic shaming around your lifestyle is not really winning over a lot of people who already feel like they're struggling, especially now with inflation and decades of wage cuts and austerity and debt. And and so, um, as I argue in the book, like this sort of moralistic lifestyle politics was always really appealing to a professional class who was, you know, pretty comfortable, uh, uh, you know, relatively speaking, having sort of a middle class secure existence. And from that perspective, it just seems like, oh, God, like I'm, I'm, I'm part of this machine that's causing climate change and we need to get everyone to stop consuming like I do. <laughs> and uh, so it just seems like um, it, it's logical from that very middle class, professional class perspective. 
But if we want to build a broader base uh, in the working class to, to actually um, win them over, we have to say, you're not the problem. <laughs> Your consumption is not the problem. In fact, it's sort of classic socialist analysis. To, you know, the working class, they don't own much but their labor power <laughs> to sell on, on the market. And so they don't control our system of energy. Um, they don't control the grid. They don't control the systems of oil distribution. And so we should not blame people in their everyday lives. And mm -hmm. we should make clear, um, you know, like some like one of our favorites, Bernie Sanders, you know, it's the it's the billionaires that are, are to blame. And, and, and it's their power we actually need to confront and overcome with a sort of positive vision of like when we overcome their power, it can actually improve people's lives and not ask you to scale back or, or consume less or, or lower your carbon footprint and all of this kind of stuff that's really popular amongst that professional class. Yeah, I, I definitely want to stay on this topic of the professional class for a minute, because this is obviously a, a very key part of your book. Um, you've appeared on the Jacobin channel before to talk about this and, of mm -hmm. course, have written for Jacobin and Catalyst. So mm -hmm. uh, talk to us about how the professional class sort of came to dominate the climate movement. And then you, you've touched on this a little bit, but um, maybe say a little bit more about how this how this seems to be getting in the way of sort of building a viable strategy to fight climate change. Right. So what I mentioned before, you know, you have this process of deindustrialization um, and the hollowing out of the industrial working class. And and obviously the processes we're all familiar with, like attacks on unions. And mm -hmm. um, but alongside that, you also have just sort of this explosion of, um, you know, uh, higher education in a country like the United States. We have more and more people kind of trying to uh, use degrees and other credentials to kind of carve out advantages in the labor market. And so in the in the post-war period and then accelerating in the kind of neoliberal period of the 80s and 90s, you get this kind of explosion of, 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 of kind of higher uh, credentialed professional class aspirant type folks. And, um, you, you know, the original theorization by Barbara and John Ehrenreich of the professional managerial class, they were actually trying to grapple with the kind of uh, a large amount of these professional managerial class people in the new left, <laughs> in the movements, and particularly the socialist movements that they were trying to build themselves. And they were trying to kind of maybe understand how that explosion of the PMC in the new left might be one reason why it was kind of sputtering at the time in the late 70s. And one thing they identify is that uh, um, there's nothing wrong with the presence of professional middle class people in left movements and socialist movements. In fact, uh, when the socialist movement was at its most powerful, had plenty of these people in the, in the parties and then the unions. Um, the problem was that this particular kind of PMC politics was kind of shaped by this kind of contempt of yeah. the masses and of the working class. And they argue there's a sort of antagonism that emerges between the PMC and the working class. And that's a real problem. So um, what I try to do in the book is kind of show how there's these all these varieties of professional class climate politics. I, I try to do this like typology. There's the Science communicators who are trying to really, you know, talk about, you know, we need to believe the truth of the science and, and, and the problem is climate denial and all these people denying the science. And, um, you know, obviously, uh, uh, you know, uh, if you're a non-college educated working class person working two to three jobs like science and the greenhouse effect and what the carbon cycle looks like is not exactly on the top. 10 of your most pressing concerns. <laughs> and, and, and there's, you know, the, what I call the policy technocrats who are, you know, going to design all these really elegant market-based policy fixes for climate change, like carbon taxes or cap and trade. And all of that kind of assumes that we're going to kind of raise the price of energy <laughs> across the economy, which, um, uh, and there's a lot of clever ways to kind of redistribute the, that, those prices that don't harm the poor. But in the end, you know, when your political message is we're going to raise the price of a key good that everyone relies on, that's not going to win over <laughs> the working right. class. We saw in France, um, you know, basically a mass political revolt against yep. climate policy and carbon taxes. 
And in the United States, uh, you know, liberals have been trying to pass type carbon tax policies, um, particularly in the state of Washington. And these things fail. They're not mm-hmm. popular. People don't like this idea of like uh, internalizing carbon emissions into prices and um, correcting the market. And then the final, uh, the one I'm probably most familiar with is uh, what I call the kind of radical um, anti-system activist right. who um, subscribe to kind of like either like this sort of like degrowth vision of consuming less mm-hmm. and, and these kind of niche, small scale kind of political solutions like urban gardens and bike sharing and mm-hmm. small scale local kind of communal experiments, which again um, are, I think, really fulfilling for the participants, but are not exactly mass popular things. Like not everyone wants to um, farm in an urban garden and, 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 you know, like do sort of communal kitchens in their neighborhood. And, and so all of these things kind of um, make a lot of sense to these professional class um, uh, advocates, but they don't really have mass appeal. They're, they're really more appealing to these small minoritarian factions in the highly educated um let's say generously, you know, 25% of, of society in the United States, that's where this kind of politics really uh, circulates and has appeal and spreads, but it doesn't get much beyond those groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to stay on this last group that you identified for a second, the kind of radical wing of the PMC climate uh, activists, um, because this group is really interesting because ostensibly they're anti-capitalist, right? Or a lot of yes. them kind of identify as such. Yeah. Um, now you brought up this concept of degrowth and I want to talk about that a little bit because um, it, you know, I think it is popular among this kind of set of the climate movement. Uh, tell us what exactly does degrowth mean and, and what do you think are the kind of overarching problems with that strategy? So there's a lot to say. <laughs> um, I mean, in many ways, it's a sort of response to, you know, we do live in a capitalist society that fetishizes GDP growth as like the the, the one barometer of kind of a healthy, um, a healthy uh, political economy. You know, if GDP is up, we sort of say, hey, things are going well for this. Um, and it just sort of uh, says, well, no, growth is what is causing all these environmental problems. And so we should actually do the opposite degrowth. And the, the, if I can remember off the top of my head, I think the latest definition is something like a planned reduction of energy and material throughput while making life uh, better for ordinary people or something like that. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'm not, I should have this written down somewhere where I can reference it. Um, but you know, the thing that really, uh, I kind of get frustrated with is, it's always focused on the aggregate. Like we're going to degrow at the aggregate, which to me, um, the problem with GDP as a concept to begin with is that it focuses on the aggregate and it, and it actually confuses the, the fact that a capitalist society is fundamentally divided between classes. Mm-hmm. So if GDP is going up 3%, that doesn't tell us a lot about how the working class is doing. Right. It tells us that firms are profiting, they're doing well, and they're investing, and they're hiring people. And that can be good for working class people. It does sometimes happen where growth can be redistributed to working class people. But it fundamentally uh, sort of obscures the fact we're in a fundamentally divided class struggle uh, mm-hmm. society where some benefit um, at the expense of the masses. And so when you're doing a class analysis, this sort of aggregate view doesn't make a, a lot of sense. So for all the I think degrowth has has a lot of policy pro- proposals I would agree with, like universal, you know, they, they actually would support Medicare for all. They would mm-hmm. support um, de- decommodifying housing and things like, uh, and sort of focusing on people's basic needs, which I do agree with. But when your message is always about less and mm-hmm. reduction and, you know, one of the, one of the slogans they have is how to live better with less. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just, it's <laughs> just like, that's not um, from a purely messaging standpoint, that's not particularly helpful again to build a, a mass base for the movement. Right, that just sounds like austerity. Exactly. And and but it's also just not an accurate way to analyze a 
a class society which has um, a struggle between classes. So you can't say let's all live better with less and let's degrow at the aggregate. You have to say we need to degrow the rich so mm-hmm. that we can grow <laughs> the yeah. working class. And, and that and actually, again, if we see climate struggle as this class struggle over industrial production that we need to kind of fundamentally change our industrial system, that's going to require growth of a whole lot of stuff, mm-hmm. including new energy infrastructure, new yep public transit infrastructure, it's going to be massive growth, actually, of all this stuff. And then the degrowth will say, oh, yeah, we know we got to grow some things, but overall, we're going to degrow. And it's just, it's not helpful. Um, So let's focus on uh, the class struggle analysis and not this aggregate sort of um, politics of less is how I frame it in the book. So on the subject of growing or um, (laughs) trying to build sort of like large scale uh, public works programs, uh, something something that you've written about, um, not just in your book, but also recently for Jacobin with Mm -hmm. friend of the show, Fred Stafford, (laughs) is uh, the New Deal, right? Uh, The New Deal, I think, provided obviously some some pretty useful blueprints for, as I was saying, these large scale public investment and infrastructure programs. And of course, is the kind of um, progenitor of the Green New Deal, which we should definitely talk about in a second. Um, But I want to I want to ask you about one specific New Deal program, which is, of course, the Tennessee Valley Authority. That's what you recently wrote about for Jacobin. Um, Talk to us about what the TVA is exactly, um, what kind of state it's in now, and whether you think it's still a sort of useful model for a green energy program. Yeah. um, So the TVA is like, you know, when you go back to the Bernie Sanders campaign, you would see a lot of overlap. Like Mm -hmm. the TVA slogan in the 1930s was electricity for all. (laughs) We've heard that before, haven't we? Um, And so it was this really populist vision of delivering this, what we now take for granted, you know, electricity, which was totally out of reach to masses of people, particularly in rural areas. And it said, we're going to build these high, these hydroelectric jam, uh, sorry, dams. <laughs> and we're not just going to um, uh, send electricity to poor people. They were really big on cheap electricity for the masses. Like they wanted, because they were really concerned by these capitalists who controlled the, what was, what we now call investor owned utility sector. And they were actually these sort of robber baron monopolists who really were price gouging consumers. And they, they didn't even find it profitable to deliver electricity to these rural areas. And so the TVA was like, not only are we going to deliver this electricity, we're going to deliver cheaper electricity than these capitalists can, and we're going to outcompete them in the market. And so it was, and, and, and obviously it was this total public works program that employed uh, masses of people in the depths of the depression who were desperate for work. It gave them meaningful work to do to build this infrastructure. And and it wasn't just in the Tennessee Valley. They did this kind of model in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and people have seen heard me say this over and over again. I just love to bring up that uh, Woody Guthrie was hired. Uh, the folk singer was hired by the the New Deal to kind of sing songs about the the rivers doing work for the people and kind of like inspiring songs about electricity and 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 how the New Deal was bringing stuff to poor people and um, downtrodden people and it's it's just really striking. You would there's just nothing like that in the climate policy space today that you could imagine folk singers singing inspiring songs about like carbon taxes or whatever's on the agenda. Um, I think the latest exciting proposal is something called the Clean Electricity Performance Program that mm-hmm. Joe, Joe Manchin, of course, killed. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, the the TVA and the wider kind of rural electrification administration was this just incredible vision that actually models what we need to do, which is fundamentally change and reshape our energy system mm-hmm. uh, in, in the climate moment. Um but what we uh, show in the piece is that a lot of people on the climate left today are actually quite critical of the TVA because it's um, it sort of represents this model that can be quite problematic, which are big centralized investor owned utilities, whereas TVA is a big centralized public utility. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and these utilities in the private sector have shown a real reluctance to shift away from fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And TVA has actually cleaned up their grid quite considerably. It's something like 55 to 60% totally zero carbon, a lot of it hydro, some mm-hmm. nuclear, very little bit of solar and wind. 
And the, the climate left is so fixated on this kind of really technically hard to achieve goal of 100% renewable energy. So we're going to transition to all solar and wind. Mm-hmm. And and accompanying that vision, they they really are much more into this kind of decentralized, small scale, kind of like the degrowth vision, like this sort yeah. of niche localist. You know, we're going to have small uh, solar farms and, and, and you know, we're going to have everyone's going to have a little solar panel on their rooftop. And mm-hmm. and it's going to be this um, decentralized, community-owned, small-scale uh, vision of renewable energy. That And so because TVA is servicing millions of customers and trying to figure out how to, 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 to deliver electricity reliably, they have um, basically committed to a marginal increase in natural gas, which is fossil fuel. Mm-hmm. And so the, the climate left just is attacking them and saying, you don't need to do this. You can just go 100% into solar and wind. And um, we just think that's this is a misplaced uh, critique. We're going to need these kind of big centralized public utilities Mm -hmm. to deliver the energy transition. We can't do it with this kind of ad hoc, small scale, localist vision of decentralized energy because, you know, climate change is a not to mention a national, but a global planetary problem. And if we have to like take over uh, our energy system, one local community at a time, we're just not going to be able to do it. So I, we actually think this vision from the 1930s of big federally supported centralized public utilities, what we call big public power, mm-hmm. like that's this kind of um, model that can really like uh transform our energy system in the speed and at the scale that we really need to to confront climate change. Mm-hmm. That that brings up another question, which is, um, you know, when you talk about the TVA and when you talk about production, um, that, that kind of leads me to this question of like, whether some sectors are more strategic than others to mm-hmm. kind of focus on or organize, right? And right. I believe in your book, you identify the electrical utility sector as kind of this key um, uh, linchpin, I guess, in sort of the yeah. struggle uh, to the, the, the climate struggle. Um, yeah. Talk about why the electric sector is so important. Um, and then, you know, how can the left, um, how can the left go about transforming the sector? And, and what kind of role do you think the labor movement can play? Yeah, great. Um, so I kind of, I, I totally drew from a lot of um, analysis you've had on this show, <laughs> like Jane, Jane McAlevey and Paul, who everyone in the labor movement kind of recognizes that it would be great if we could organize the whole labor movement, like across the board and get the working class um, moving at, at the whole level of the working class. But that's not really how it works. Typically, you really want to organize in what Jane would call strategic sectors. And she really goes back to the New Deal and she shows that the CIO or the Congress of Industrial Organizations, they really chose, they said, we're going to focus on the steel industry, the coal, we're going to focus on auto. And we're going to organize in these sectors because these are kind of the the linchpins of the economy. And if we can win union power here, we can kind of strategically use the strike weapon to um, force a crisis in those key industries and then mm-hmm. transform labor relations at, at for the whole working class. And Jane McAlevey has suggested that in our current day of, again, a very deindustrialized kind of um, uh, context, the, she identified strategic sectors of education, healthcare, which we've seen a, a ton of militancy lately in the labor movement, mm-hmm. and logistics, which we're starting mm-hmm. to see with Amazon a little more militancy. But I tried to use this kind of theory of, of, of labor organizing in a strategic sector and tried to apply it to the climate movement. Because when you look at climate change uh, from a technical perspective, essentially everyone agrees that basically decarbonizing our energy starts with the electric sector, starts with electricity. And what we want to do is massively clean up our electric sector and then what's called electrify everything else that we don't use electricity for. So like your uh, like transportation, uh, we want to move towards electric vehicles. Like uh, if you have a natural gas furnace in your home, we want to move toward electric heat pumps. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of industrial production applications that we could, um, if not totally electrify, like uh, find clean clean energy ways to produce with clean electricity. And so this electrify everything strategy really puts electricity at the linchpin. And and a lot of climate left people realize this, but what they what climate left people don't say enough is that that sector, the electric utility sector, is one of the 
most unionized in our country. <laughs> it has close to 25% union density. Um, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, uh, the Utility Workers Union of America are really powerful unions in this very sector mm -hmm. that we need to transform. And when you look uh, around in the climate organizing, there's not a lot of um, work being done to really win over these unions to a, um, I don't know, a more kind of radical climate program that would, that would actually argue we need to radically transform this electric system as fast as possible so that we can solve this global crisis of climate change. What you do see is a lot of the, again, the professional class activists are are sort of like, just sort of assume those unions are bad and immoral. Some of them might be Trump supporters, you know, and that the leadership of these unions are conservative and we right. don't, you know, they're, they're bad people. So they almost write them off and don't want to engage with them. But it's, it's astonishing because these workers, um, like, I think you had Lee Phillips talk about yes. this, like an, an industrial union. Like these are the workers that know how these systems work more than anyone. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones that um, actually have the knowledge and expertise to really understand how an electric grid system works and how we could actually transform it to not only clean it up and decarbonize it, but also deliver this vital service to people. And that's something electricity workers really take a lot of pride in, mm -hmm. that they they are delivering this, you know, life enhancing and sometimes life-saving uh, mm -hmm. service to people. And they really care about things like grid reliability. Um, and so it's not going to be easy. Um, but I, what I suggest in the, in the, in the book is that if you're in a climate movement, first, you should be working with these unions they should have a seat at the table. But not only that, they should have like the core driving seat at the table. Mm -hmm. They should be really shaping the agenda of, of whatever public power campaign you're on or anything like that. Um, and also, you know, for, um, people that have thought about the labor movement in this way of like, there's these strategic sectors, uh, DSA is focused on this kind of rank and file strategy where people can actually get jobs in these unions mm -hmm. and, and try to build a kind of more radical militant um, organizing uh, culture in those unions themselves to try to transform them from the inside. And I actually think there's a, a really good argument um, that climate activists could make to these unions, which is that if, if they don't start organizing proactively about this looming energy transition that actually when you look at what's happening in the energy space today like a lot of renewable energy production and renewable energy development is actually quite anti-union mm -hmm. and quite it's quite owned by private capital and and so if the electrical unions are not proactive they're going to be kind of swept away by this kind of Wall Street led green capitalism. Yeah. And so so they actually have an interest for their members and their and their their unions themselves to kind of think strategically about how this climate crisis and how this energy transition can be led by unions and 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 really driven by unions in ways that benefit their members and grow their unions because if we're going to electrify everything we're going to build massive amounts of new infrastructure and that's mm -hmm. that should hopefully mean massive amounts of union jobs. And as much as Joe Biden says that's going to be the case, like we actually need real legal uh, uh, um, sort of forces that that mandate that those jobs are union jobs. Right. And so there's a, you know, there's a real opportunity there to kind of build this movement within the labor movement in the industrial sector we need to transform. I want to ask you now about the Green New Deal, because, yeah. uh, you know, on the subject of kind of the relationship and the occasional tensions between activists and labor, uh, the Green New Deal is a really interesting project because, you know, it's it's really kind of the um, the centerpiece legislation of, you know, a lot of progressive politicians and much of the climate left now. And um it directly it, it 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 directly references kind of these big sort of like sweeping mm -hmm. public works programs that we were talking about earlier and to me it sort of signals that there is at least a significant part of the climate left that is very interested in you know being pro labor and pro working class and kind of trying to put together you know a again new deal sort of style coalition of 
public investment. Um, Now, that said, uh, something you alluded to, the Green New Deal really hasn't found much sweeping support outside of the climate movement just yet. Uh, What would it take to make something like the Green New Deal a real political possibility? I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is there seems to be a lot of good intentions when it comes Mm -hmm. to the Green New Deal. You've got all of these politicians and climate activists who, you know, have sort of started to signal that they're very pro-labor and they really want to kind of forge these alliances with the existing labor movement to try to craft, again, a, a mm-hmm. model of public investment. Um, but something seems to be going on. So so uh, what's what's happening with the Green New Deal? <laughs> um, wow. I mean, I, I have to say, like, when it came on the scene in 2019, when um, those, low so many years ago, and <laughs> AOC, you know, um, helped uh, the Sunrise Movement occupy Nancy Pelosi's office and they're Mm -hmm. calling for green jobs for all and they're calling for a Green New Deal. I was really like so excited by this because I I finally saw an upsurge of um, a political movement that was fundamentally about climate policy will improve your life. (laughs) Like they were talking about, you know, their AOC's original um, uh, resolution Talked about, you know, um, Medicare for all, um, you know, everyone, a job guarantee mm-hmm. uh, and and real material, universal material benefits for everyone that that would be part of this uh, program, which is, again, a, a lot of what the New Deal ushered in. Right. Social Security, um, union rights, all this kind of great universal social programs. Um, and but the problem is. <laughs> Uh, the whole theory of change with the Green New Deal is that once you start to deliver these uh, universal uh, public goods under the under the name of climate action, mm-hmm. then you're going to start to build these popular majorities around climate um, action um, because people won't again, they won't need to understand the science of the carbon cycle or the greenhouse effect to understand that, um, you know, guaranteed good government job or green public housing or Medicare for all that, if these programs start to, to, to actually be delivered to the masses of people, they're going to find support. And we've seen that over and over again. Whenever the government kind of creates a, a universal program, people like them, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so, but the problem is if you don't deliver those types of uh, uh, programs, then you can't start to build those popular majorities, start to build those working class coalitions around your program. And so while the Green New Deal was a great idea, I still say it'd be, it'd be a great idea if we actually tried it, right? Because <laughs> essentially we all, not to relitigate, and but we all know what happened. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders was the more kind of I would say Green New Deal candidate, he lost. Mm-hmm. And for all of Biden's bluster about being a climate president, you know, um, his his program, which a lot of climate activists got behind and thought was good with the Build Back Better, Build, uh, build Back Better, was essentially um, a bunch of tax credits for private capital to to develop renewable energy. <laughs> and, and it was a world historic level of tax credits. Like they were going to spill, uh, spend like $600 billion on these tax credits. But there wasn't enough of that Green New Deal vision of public sector led investment, public sector um, building of, of these, you know, beautiful New Deal projects. They didn't just build dams, they built libraries, they built museums, they built music amphitheaters. Like they built all this stuff that actually a lot of us still benefit from today. There's this wonderful Living New Deal project that just sort of tries to trace yes. all the infrastructure that we still rely on. Yes. Um, and and so that kind of vision got lost. And again, I think I mentioned this before, a lot of the climate activist community really put their whole organizing around this wonky solution to our electric power program called the Clean Electricity Performance Program. And it was going to like be this wonky regulation that forced decarbonization in the electric sector. But it had none of this, you know, public goods, material benefits, inspiring public infrastructure, had none of that. So Biden, unfortunately, lost the whole Green New Deal vision. And and then, of course, he, even his lame climate agenda didn't even get through because Joe Manchin came in and blocked that. So so unfortunately, we're in a situation now where we're so far from power 
that implementing this kind of vision that the Green New Deal people had is just off the table right now. So the only thing we can hope is that the political conjuncture will shift in the coming decade into a place where we might be able to actually implement it, right? Because again, we never implemented it. <laughs> and and we can't, the, the theory of change won't work unless you start to implement those those public goods. Right. So I think then maybe a last question for you mm-hmm. is, where do you see the most promise right now for kind of reorienting the climate movement towards these more productive ends that you were talking about? Yeah. Um, when Bernie lost, I think all, all of us were like, well, that's really awful. So now all we can do is do what the left really should always be doing, which is go back to the labor movement, go back to trying to rebuild the union movement, try to rebuild. So I actually think um, this kind of uh, climate activism that really takes the electric and, and not just I, I would I would say I, I kind of think maybe a bit too narrowly in the book about electricity. Like we should think broadly about the building trades as a whole, I think, as Lee Phillips does in that great article, like like we should just try to win over um, a big swath of, of unions to this climate agenda. And, 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 and actually, you know, the Green New Deal people did a decent job of doing that, but they won over typically like the, the, the unions you would expect to support climate action, which are the teachers unions and the nurses unions. Those are the first unions that actually endorsed the Green New Deal. And so we're going to build these alliances with what I would call like the low carbon sectors of 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 like these um, forms of care work and knowledge work where mm-hmm. obviously they're going to support um, uh, climate action. But but we actually need to build support within that more belly of the beast, like the yes. industrial heart, the hidden abode, if you will, mm-hmm. of all this production of, of electricity, of energy and of buildings and and and, and industrial infrastructure that's going to be at the core of any climate transition and so that's where we have to focus on today and then hope that the political winds shift in, in such a way that allows for a kind of mass push for that kind of Green New Deal vision down the line. All right. Again, Matt Huber's new book is Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. That is out now from Verso. Matt, thank you so much for your time. It was great to see you. Yeah, I love the show. It's great to be on with you, Jim. Thank you, Matt.